Welcome to the Vanguard Bible Church Podcast. The current sermon series is entitled, Authentic Walk. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org or come worship with us on Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. at Freedom Middle School in Northwest Bakersfield. We hope you enjoy today's message. I don't remember much from junior high science class, but one thing I do remember learning is how to do a litmus test. Litmus is a water-soluble mixture of dyes extracted from an organic fungus that, uh, when embedded in the filter paper, can be used to test for the acidity or alkalinity in a solution. You may remember that if the paper turns red, then the solution is acidic, and if it turns blue, then it is alkaline. Outside of the middle school laboratory, the term litmus test has also become a metaphor. For example, in the political realm, it's a uh, metaphor for a well-crafted question asked of a potential candidate to reveal where the candidate stands on a critical issue. Litmus tests are needed in order to obtain the true identity of a solution or a person. Thus, the purpose of a litmus test is to discern that which cannot be discerned by our five senses. Today, the Apostle John is going to give us a litmus test that reveals the difference between a true believer and a false witness. I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to 1 John chapter 2. We're continuing our series in 1 John called Authentic Walk. If you forgot your Bibles, or if you forgot your Bible, excuse me, just raise your hand and one of our ushers can bring one to you. We'll get one to you. Just stay right there. We want you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you so you can follow along. Just a little bit of review from last week, a little bit of background as you open your Bibles and you take out your sermon notes during the worship folder you received. Um, last week we learned that John is very unique compared to the other 11 apostles uh, because he was, first of all, relationally close to Jesus. The Gospels tell us that he was part of the inner circle, the inner three. Peter, James, and John were the closest and spent the most time with Jesus. They were a part of the 12, and then after the 12, there was the 70. Jesus had concentric rings or layers of relationships. He also was faithfully close to Jesus. The gospel accounts tell us the remaining 12, 10 apostles, excuse me, if you take Judas out, uh, the other 10 uh, deserted Jesus at his crucifixion because they feared for their own lives. But not John. John was the only one to stay with Jesus through the crucifixion. John was also emotionally close to Jesus. In addition to watching Jesus die, uh, he was also asked by the Lord to take care of his mother Mary. And John eventually saw her die too. Thus he was a close family friend. As the last living apostle that ministered with Jesus, it's believed that John wrote the letters 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John uh, in the sunset of his life, somewhere around 90 to 95 AD. 
This is important. He was ministering at Ephesus at the time. Uh, this is important because it would have been more than 50, 60 years after Jesus had died. 1 John is a book of concern. John is trying to course correct some things that he was seeing towards the end of the first century in the early church. Just a few issues that he tries to address in this letter would include, first of all, too many people claiming to know Jesus that actually didn't, an increasing number of false teachers spreading false gospels, and then a diminishing witness for the Lord's people. And so inspired by the Holy Spirit, John uses apostolic authority and his own eyewitness testimony to call his readers back to the real gospel and an authentic walk with Jesus Christ. Our theme verse for this series is 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 and 6. I put the two together, kind of uh, meshed them together, these two verses, in order to make them... Um, it, it's a little wordy, uh, the two, but to put the, the idea together and make it simple and easy to memorize. If you haven't underlined it or highlighted it in your Bible, I want to encourage you to do so. Uh, but let's read it out loud together. You have a copy of the verse on the screen behind me or on the sermon note handout. John says, Whoever says I know him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Throughout this series, we're going to hear this venerable ministry veteran tell us this simple truth in several different ways. Real Christians really walk with Christ. Our big idea for today is this, the litmus test for authentic faith in Jesus Christ is obedience. The litmus test for authentic faith in Jesus Christ is obedience. Real Christ followers want to walk with their Savior and long for his return with every passing day. It's rare to hear obedience talked about in most churches these days because a seismic shift took place in the latter half of the 19th century in church history. Uh, evangelists during that time period started to what some call the easy believism movement by erroneously preaching that a person could accept Christ as Savior but reject him as Lord of their life. They did this, I think, to make the gospel more palatable in America. That led to an explosion of professions of faith, which then led to a new definition of success in ministry. Big numbers. One can see why this would be so appealing. I mean, who wouldn't want the promise of forgiveness and eternal life, but then also be able to live autonomously from God still? I mean, that's a great deal. But this is problematic for at least two reasons. It changed the gospel that Jesus and the apostles preached, and that's not good, and John's going to talk about that in the next couple of weeks. A second reason it's problematic is that it leads people to think they are saved when they actually are not. John is going to show us throughout this letter that false teaching and false converts were already starting to show up at the end of the first century. And so with that, if you would look at your Bibles with me at chapter 2 in the first couple of verses, John says, My little children, I am writing these things to you, so that you may not sin. 
But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Here's the first truth that John tells us this morning, and that is, number one in your outline, God's grace should motivate our obedience. God's grace should motivate our obedience. Notice John says, but if anyone does sin, it's important to know that John knows that none of the readers he's writing to, including us, can go without sinning the rest of their lives. In fact, we, we can't go more than a few minutes probably. Uh, that's good news. In fact, you should just, I'm gonna encourage you right now, just turn to your neighbor and say, that's good news because I was just sinning yesterday. <laughs> you, see, you see, that was happening in the first century. <laughs> no, I didn't say turn to your neighbor and tell them they were sinning yesterday. Don't do, don't do that. <laughs> see, even those that have repented of their sin and trusted in Christ alone for their salvation, they would still struggle with sin. We all do. And the solution to this problem, according to John, is, is to allow Jesus to be our advocate. So this is the first of a few reasons that John gives and why we should follow Christ in obedience and be motivated to do so. Here's letter A in your outline. He provided an attorney in Jesus. John says we have an advocate. It's the Greek word parakletos. It, it, it means, it was a word used in the, in, the, in the New Testament to describe a defense attorney who takes a case before a judge or a tribunal on behalf of his client. When a Christ follower sins or fails the Lord in some way, there's a hearing that takes place in heaven in which God the Father will determine our consequences. Before he makes a determination, he appoints Christ the Son as our defense attorney. Now it's important to note that this is, this is not some immature, inexperienced public defender with a cheap suit. This is the best attorney in the entire universe that money can't buy. He can't be bought. During the hearing, which we're not present for, Jesus goes to bat for us on issues such as what our consequences will be, whether we've repented, whether we will be restored, how our failure will be used by the Father in the future, etc. This means that if you sinned in the past week but did not reap the full consequences for your sin, you have Jesus, your advocate, to thank for that. It means that if you sinned in the past week and you're still here breathing today and weren't sentenced to death immediately, you have Jesus, your attorney, to thank for that. Next, John says he provided atonement through Jesus. Atonement. The ESV uses the word propitiation some translations use atoning sacrifice or the word atonement. This verse is very important. It's an important piece of a larger pie we call the gospel. In the original language, John uses the Greek word that could be literally rendered to turn away wrath. Uh, this word was used in Greek literature to denote an offering made by a guilty person in order to placate or appease the person who had been offended. Now, when it comes to our sin... Who is the person that's been offended? It's God. That's right. 
So the term propitiation or atonement, it, it has a long history rooted in the Old Testament. When the people of Israel sinned in the Old Testament, God required that blood had to be shed as a consequence for their sin. And in order to be forgiven and reconciled with God, they had to bring an animal to the temple priest. The guilty sinner would then put their hand on the head of the animal to transfer their guilt to the animal. Then the temple priest would slaughter the animal, sprinkle its blood on the altar, and then place its carcass on the altar and burn it as a substitute in place of the sinner. And if that graphic description engross, uh, doesn't gross you out like it did me, um, it's just a fraction of how graphic and gross our sin is to the Lord. And that's why Jesus' death on the cross was so graphic and ugly, because the Lord sees our sin like that. It's, it's offensive to him. It makes him wince. It's hard to watch. However, the good news is, is that according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, the Lord saw that the Old Testament sacrificial system wasn't sufficient to take away sin. And so he sent Jesus, his son, as a one-time final sacrifice to take our place. So how do we apply these first couple of verses? Well, here's the first application. Um, I, I think we need to follow Jesus like a prisoner set free. <laughs> If Jesus Christ is, has saved you from your sins and given you the gift of eternal life, then Jesus should be the most important relationship in your life. And if he's the most important relationship in your life, then he deserves the best of your time and your talent and your treasure. We should obey God because we want to, not because we have to. We should be so moved by all that Jesus has done for us that we, in essence, tell him with our lives and our hearts, because you gave all of yourself for me, I will give all myself to you. It's the least I can do. You owe me nothing, but I owe you everything, Lord. You loved me while I was still yet a sinner, so I will love you as my Lord and Savior. So we should follow Jesus like prisoners set free, loyal to him only, because he's the one that set us free from the bondage of our sin and has given us the gift of eternal life. The litmus test for authentic faith in Jesus Christ is obedience. Look at the text again here in 1 John chapter 2. I'm going to read verses 3 and then 5 and 6. John now says, next says, um, and by this, we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. Verse 5, by this we may be sure we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Here's number two on your outline. The second thing that John tells us this morning is that obedience proves that we know him. Obedience proves that we know him. You'll see in the next few minutes that in the first century, uh, there were more people claiming to know Christ than actually knew him. 
And for those that claim to have fellowship with Jesus, John is offering a very simple litmus test. Do you obey his commands? He wanted to be certain that the faith of those claiming to know Christ was actually sincere. This was a concern for the Apostle Paul as well when he wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Paul, Paul was concerned for the Corinthians. He said, I'm, I'm concerned that the serpent, just as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. The word sincere is an interesting word that has its roots in Latin. The Latin sign Sarah. It's two words, which means without wax. In the days of the Roman Empire, some artists would cover up their marble sculpting mistakes by filling them in with wax and then sell their sculptures to uh, customers with the imperfections hidden by the wax. Trustworthy artists, however, would make certain their customers knew the statues were sold signed Sarah, that is, without wax. Now, notice in verse 6, whoever says they know him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Walk Walking is a metaphor used, an idiom in the scriptures, used for a way of life or a code of conduct. I think pastor and author Eugene Peterson defined it best when he called walking a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. Notice in this definition from Peterson that, first of all, there's the passage of time, a long time. Thus, it's sustained obedience. It's a pattern over time. It's not, well, I was obedient for a week. It's, it's over a lifetime. Also, notice that this definition of walk describes a lifetime of realignment. To walk with the Lord in the same direction. It, it means to have a relationship with Him in which... We are constantly adjusting and submitting and surrendering to his will. This means that if God's word and his spirit collide with your thoughts and feelings, it's his will that should prevail and your will that yields. That's how a long obedience in the same direction happens. So as I was preparing this message yesterday, I was wrestling with uh, why is obedience to Christ so important? I was trying to imagine being in your seat right now, listening, and going, yeah, but why do I need to do that? It's really hard. And, and so the next, I'm going to give you four sub-points that are not on your outline, and I apologize. I thought of these after your outline went to the printer's. Uh, that's my bad, uh, but there should be room at the bottom of the second page for you to jot these down. They'll be on the keynote screen behind me, and if you're watching online or listening on podcast, I'll update this on the handout that goes on our website. 
So here's, here's four quick reasons I was able to find in the scriptures for why obedience matters to Christ. First of all, Jesus expects it. Letter A, Jesus expects it. You're all familiar with the cliche, actions speak louder than words. Well, that's basically what Jesus told his disciples his final night with him in John 14. If you love me, he says, you will keep my commandments. Meaning also the inverse. If you don't keep my commandments, don't learn my commandments, then you don't love me. Which then also raises the question, why on earth would you not love him? Our Lord was making it clear to his disciples that spiritual talk, Bible knowledge, feelings, emotions, good intentions are worthless to him. He wants to see faith in action. He wants to see us show that we love him. And Jesus knew that only action would advance the gospel and that actions originate in the heart. Here's another reason why obedience to Christ is so important. Let it be, it makes our witness credible. 1 Peter 2.12, that's where Peter is writing to suffering believers, and he, he says, live such good lives amongst the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. I love that. Live such a good life, man. He doesn't mean... Go out and live like uh, sow your wild oats. He's saying, walk with Christ and show the unbelieving world that Jesus offers a better way. That Jesus in your marriage is better than Jesus not in your marriage. That Jesus in your finances is better than ignoring him in your finances. See, our disobedience created the need for Jesus to come and die on the cross. But on the other hand, our obedience highlights the power of the gospel to transform rebellious hearts into respectful ones. It also shows the world that Jesus offers a healthier, more fulfilling, more meaningful way to live than those who waste their lives chasing sin. Here's the third uh, reason obedience matters. Let her see. It leads to blessings. Jesus himself said in Luke eleven twenty eight, 28, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Some of those blessings will be temporal here on earth, while others will be eternal rewards received in heaven. When we apply what God's word says about money, people, marriage, parenting, priorities, uh, character, decision-making, etc., all those areas of our lives are improved tenfold. But when we choose to do what we want in all those areas I just mentioned, we make a mess of our lives. So it leads to blessings. And here's letter D, uh, a fourth reason why obedience matters, and that is that it prepares us for heaven. It prepares us for heaven. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 14, the apostle urges uh, his audience to be ready for the return of the Lord, knowing that it's imminent. And so he writes, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. I stumbled upon a quote from A.W. Tozer this week about heaven that uh, I found quite gripping. I wanted to share with you uh, 
Tozer writes, heaven is a place of surrender to the whole will of God. And it is heaven because it is such a place. On the other hand, hell is certainly the world of disobedience. Hell is the Alcatraz for the unconstituted rebels who refuse to surrender to the will of God. Heaven is heaven because it is the world of obedient children. Heaven is heaven because children of the Most High God find they are in their normal sphere as obedient moral beings. In other words, if I would take what Tozer just said and put it into a Twitter post or 140 characters, I would say heaven isn't a place where we all finally get what we want. It's the place where we all finally do what God wants. Finally, for the first time. And that's what makes it heaven. So, application. I think these next few verses here call us to lovingly obey the Lord. For the true believer, God's word is the ultimate authority in their life. For the true believer, learning God's word is not optional and obeying it's not negotiable. John is saying with unapologetic boldness, if you claim to know Jesus, then walk with him, be like him, sacrifice for him, and if necessary, suffer for him. But do it because you love him, because he first loved you. The litmus test for authentic faith in Jesus Christ is obedience. Now, this grandfather of the faith starts chapter 2 showing his tender side. Notice in verse 1, he says, my little children, and I think I mentioned last week that he uses that turn of phrase a few times, but uh, there's a shift that takes place now where this gray-haired war hero uh, shows us his toughness. So he's tender, and now he's going to get tough with a change in tone. Look at verse 4. John says, Now whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. Skip down to verses 9 and 11 now. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever hates his brother, excuse me, whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Here's number three on your outline. The third truth that John tells us here is that some claim to know him but don't. Some claim to know him but don't. The apostle basically compares and contrasts two groups in this text those that know Christ and those that claim to but don't. He says, whoever says I know him, apparently there were some folks falsely claiming to know Jesus when they didn't. They might have been individuals that liked the forgiveness and eternal life that Jesus offered, but they didn't like the demands of discipleship. So eh, I don't want to do that. Yeah, I want to be with the famous Jesus who was the miracle worker. I want to see big answers to prayer. But don't ask me to deny myself. 
Notice in verse 4, he says, such a person is a liar. It's the same Greek word that Jesus used to describe Satan in John chapter 8, verse 44. The word means to break faith, to be a falsifier, or a faithless man. You can feel John's indignation leaping off the page if you slow down to read it. Just imagine if you had a wealthy relative whom you knew intimately and loved deeply that died and left an inheritance for you to get a portion of. However, not long after your relative's death, certain people start making public claims that they too know your relative. And they start saying things about him that you know are not true. And they start trying to claim part of your inheritance. How would you feel? Here's John who's lived almost a century He's seen Jesus die, took care of Jesus' mother, saw all of his friends die, martyred they were, most of the apostles, and John's with Jesus, hears his teaching, and then all of a sudden sees a group of people rising up going, oh yeah, we knew him too, and they're changing his message. You can kind of feel John going, no, you do not. That's not the savior I knew. You're a liar. Because people who know him walk like he walks. Everybody that Jesus encountered who received Christ during his ministry, they were changed and they followed him. They didn't play games with him. John, I think, is mad about this because he sees the harm that it's doing to the church. And he doesn't like the lack of integrity, the the lack of consistency or congruency of claim to know Jesus, walk with Jesus. Instead, he sees this happening, and after all that he has suffered and all that he has seen, he's watching this. John is saying with unapologetic boldness the inverse of what he just said a couple verses earlier. He's saying, don't! Claim to know Jesus if you're not going to walk with him. If you're not going to be like him. If you don't want to sacrifice for him. And you don't want to suffer for him. Just don't. Change your name. Join another team. Now the scriptures are replete with references about those who talk about Jesus but don't back it up with their walk. Jesus talked about this in the parable of the sower in Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 20. He mentions the rude awakening that uh, false converts will get at the end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7, where he says, Many will come to me on that day when I return and say, Lord, Lord, look what I did for you. Some of them even will have done miracles, but Jesus will say, Depart from me. I never knew you. What a scary day that will be. Paul warned Titus in Titus chapter 1, verse 16, to be on the lookout for those that profess to know Christ but deny him by their lifestyle. 
I could go on and on and on and give several other references, but let me just say this. The, the bottom line is, is that the scriptures leave no room for somebody to profess faith in Christ and not demonstrate that faith by following Christ. And any gospel that tells you otherwise is a false gospel. It's a lie. And John is ticked off about it. I would summarize it in this way, very succinct way, to help you remember this truth that the scriptures teach and what John is saying here, and that is that not every profession is a conversion. Not every profession is a conversion. There have always been, and there always will be, more people that claim to know Christ than actually do. He will always have more fans than he has followers. So, what are the applications for these next few verses? If John is saying some claim to know him but don't, what do we, what do, we do with that? As a church, well, let me give you a heads up. This might sting a little bit, and I'm reluctant to share this, but I have to because it's right there in the text. Here's two applications. Please don't shoot me. I have a family. First of all, I think the text calls us to examine our hearts. We need to do what Paul Encourage the Corinthians to do in 2 Corinthians 13.5 and examine our own hearts to make sure we are in the faith. It's a healthy practice to do, to do a self-diagnosis. Do I really believe what I say I believe? A second application. Don't change the gospel for your loved ones. Now, this is hard for me to say. Please hear me out here. Something I have seen too many believers do is rewrite the gospel so they can claim their loved one or loved ones who never followed Christ are somehow in heaven. This is sinful heretical and offensive to the Lord. Why? Because when we remove the requirement of repentance and faith in Christ alone by grace alone, we tell God he got it wrong. We, we tell him we want a different standard for our loved ones than he set for the rest of the world. We, we tell him, Lord, I want favoritism for my family and my friends. I want them to get into heaven without having to repent and trust Christ or go to church and walk with Jesus. And that's, I say that because too many times I've heard someone say, oh, yeah, 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 he's in heaven with the Lord. Really? Yeah, yeah. he asked Jesus in his heart when he was seven. Oh, really? Tell me about his walk with the Lord. Well, you know, he really didn't go to church that often. And, um, yeah, he didn't really like reading the Bible and so on and so forth. 
And it's sad because I hear people say that, and if I was to question them, they would get really offended. But what's sad to me is that they don't realize they're offending God because they're saying, I want to rewrite the gospel so that my family or friends can get in to heaven. And that's just really dangerous to do. Instead, we need to think biblically about our loved ones. And I I have the same issue. I've got family members that are not saved. Some that go to church, they're not saved. I want them to be in eternity too. But I'm not willing to change the gospel in order for that to happen. I don't have that authority. That is not my call to make. It's not my heaven. And, and, and they didn't sin against me and offend me. They, my, my friends and loved ones sinned against the Lord. But here's why I think one reason why that, this happens often. It's a trick that the evil one plays. The evil one wants you to believe a false gospel or create a false gospel on your own so that you tell yourself or think or deceive thinking your friend, loved one is saved so you won't pray for their salvation, so you won't share the true gospel with them, and so then they don't actually receive Christ. The adversary is behind it. And so I I just tell you this based on what John is saying here. Don't be duped. Don't be fooled. The adversary wants you to be. And so it's, it's even when I see little flickers of spiritual life in some of my family members, I have to constantly remind myself, wait a minute, have they, have they done what Jesus asked? Have they repented and trusted in Christ alone for their salvation? Have they done that? Are they demonstrating a changed life? Is there evidence they've been born again? No. They just said prayer at Thanksgiving dinner. That was it. it it's but they're still continuing to live the same way they lived. And I have to remind myself, don't change the gospel, Carrie, because you want to get your family into heaven. Because it won't work. It won't work. Okay, look at the the last few verses here, 12 to 14 with me as we wrap things up. John says, I am writing to you, little children. Notice the loving grandfather tone because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. And I write to you, children, because you know the Father. And I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. And I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Here's number four on your outline. The benefits of knowing him inspire our perseverance. You see, John is going through and he's now calling out certain groups. I think he's doing this, it's a a rhetorical tool that some authors in scripture use to sort of wake up anybody in the audience that thinks this doesn't apply to them. (laughs) And so it would be as if me saying, hey, all of you in your 20s, truth. (laughs) 
hey, all of you in your 30s, truth. All of you that are you know, middle-aged and have teenagers at home, truth. Where, where it's like he's calling out specific groups in the congregation so that nobody can say, uh, this doesn't apply to me. He's talking to somebody else. And so he says, children, fathers, young men. Oh, you young men again. Maybe the young men had a hard time listening in Ephesus. I don't know. But, but uh, he's saying this, and here's the application. Press on when you struggle. Press on when you struggle. When life gets hard, if Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, John says you can be encouraged by the fact that, that your sins are still forgiven. Verse 12. You, that you, you know the God who existed before time began. Verse 13. You can be encouraged when life is hard that you've overcome the evil one through faith in Christ. Verse 13. And, and you have strength in Christ, verse 14. So he's ending with encouragement, saying even when things are hard, you can still fall back on these things right here because nothing has changed in heaven. If you know Jesus and your life is hard. Well... I read a story several years ago about a missionary translator who was struggling to find a word for obedience in the native language of the country where he was serving. One of the reasons for this struggle is, was, was the fact that obedience was a virtue seldom practiced in that country. And so the people in that, they didn't have a word in their language for it. But this missionary was working to translate the New Testament for that people group. In the New Testament, obedience comes up several times. So he, he was really praying, Lord, I need a word. I, how can I help these people understand what obedience means in the Greek New Testament? So one day, as he was returning home from the village, the translator whistled to his dog, and the dog, his dog came running full speed towards the missionary. Upon seeing this, an old villager said admiringly in his native tongue, your dog was all ear. Immediately, the translator knew he had the word he needed for obedience in that native language. To be all ear. And so I leave you with this today. Are you obeying the Lord in every area of your life? Are you listening to his word and the spirit to make sure that you are in his will? Are you all ear when the Lord speaks? And this is important because the litmus test for authentic faith in Jesus Christ is obedience. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you for John and his boldness. Father, thank you for, even though this was difficult for him, I can't imagine how difficult it was to be the last living apostle waiting and waiting and waiting to go home to be with you. But, Lord, thank you 
for our sake, for keeping John around so that he could write these words. Lord, there are some tough truths in this passage that John raises, and uh, I'm sure they were as difficult to hear as they were for me to speak. Father, would you please tenderize hearts in this room or those that are listening online that might be prone to reject or react to these truths and become defensive or justify things. Instead, Lord, would you, by your spirit, working like a tenderizer on meat, just soften hearts. Father, for those that are here today that maybe haven't been walking with you, would you please remove the obstacle or work in their lives in such a way so that the, the stumbling block, the, the, that thing that's holding them back from walking with Christ would be removed. Lord, I know there's also probably some here today, like myself, who have, who have loved ones that although they may go to church or they may profess a faith in Jesus, um, their, their lives don't reflect it. Lord, I, I just want to ask, please, would you you bring our friends and loved ones to faith in Jesus Christ. We want to see them be born again. And, and Lord, would you maybe even use us to, to help make that happen? We want them to have peace with you and forgiveness and the hope of eternal life and access to your throne room in prayer. But Lord, please forgive us if we've tried to change the gospel so that we could feel better about their spiritual condition. We, we realize after seeing what John wrote, we have no right to do that. Lord, would you, would you help us as a church to be uh, the kind of church that not only says I know him, but also we, we walk as Jesus walked. Even when it's inconvenient, uncomfortable, requires us to sacrifice or maybe even to suffer. I thank you, Lord, that you promise in, in the scriptures to give us the grace we need to do that that you've given us your spirit to help us obey and that whatever you've called us to do, you will enable us to do. And finally, Lord, if there's anyone here today or listening online that does not know Jesus, they maybe just have an understanding of the gospel, they've heard it, they're familiar with the story, but they've never acted on it. They've never given their heart in surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, would you reveal Christ to them? Would you make today the day of salvation for them?
thank you for your grace. Thank you for being good to us. Thank you for loving us while we were still yet sinners. We pray all this in the precious name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Again, we hope you've enjoyed listening to the Vanguard Bible Church podcast by Pastor Kerry Knack. For more information about Vanguard Bible Church, please visit our website at www.vanguardbible.org. Have a great week, and we hope to see you at Vanguard Bible Church.